What a great job setting the table this morning as they're transitioning off. I'd like to point out the fact that I wish I had this song in my mind when we were on the Boundary Waters the day we were coming in. It was storming. And uh, man, if I could have remembered this one in the middle of it, I would have sang that one loud. I was singing the doxology and did wonders for my prayer life, you know, when the waves are about a foot high and white capping and you're in a 16-foot canoe with everything you need for a week and two kids. And, uh, but the Lord saw us through, well, one kid at that point, later two kids. But anyhow, the Lord saw us through. I only thought we were going to die two times, but that's a true adventure, right? <laughs> you're not sure how it's going to go. So anyway. All right, uh, if you're with us for the first time, the first time in a long time, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21, verses 25 through 38. Uh, We've been systematically, thank you, systematically working our way through the Gospel of Luke, and here we have arrived at a section where Jesus is speaking, and he is in this passage speaking about his return. Now, let me preface this by saying... I have seen a fixation on prophecy in the church and in our culture that I would actually argue is unhealthy, right? Um, I want to make this very clear this morning. There is a very large emphasis and an intrinsic theme throughout all of the New Testament on the return of Christ, okay? So hear me when I say that. This This is a theme throughout all the New Testament that we see, the return of Jesus Christ, But it is meant, and we're going to see this in the text today, it is meant to be given to us and to be intrinsically tied to daily living, all right? And that's what I'm hoping that we can see in the text this morning. I'm not going to get hung up and I'm not going to try to convince you to be a premillennialist, a historic premillennialist, a premillennialist dispensational, or an all-millennial. Personally, I'm a pan-millennialist. I think when Jesus comes back, it's all going to pan out just fine for Christians, right? So that's my personal position. But what I want you to see this morning is how Jesus, this instruction that he gives is important. He even says here, these words that I'm going to say today are going to last forever. So I want you to understand what he's saying, and I want you to apply it to daily living. Let's, let's hear that this is the Word of God. Hear it. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distresses of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of heaven will be shaken And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads up, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look, a fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Watch yourself. Least your hearts be weighed down with dispation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day came upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day 
he was teaching in the temple. But at night, he went out and lodged on the mount called Olive. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Amen. May God have blessing to the reading of his holy, inerrant, infallible word. I pray he writes this truth on all of our hearts because the grass withers, the flowers fade. Say it with me if you know it. But the word of our God endures forever. Amen. All right. Well, it's interesting here. When I was in seminary, I remember there was a course that was offered called eschatology and ethics. And eschatology is a big fancy theology word that means the study of last things. So eschatology entails the return of Christ and your death. That's the two kind of, because death is last, right? That's the last thing you do here. And so death and the return of Christ. And I always looked at that class and thought that's backwards. It should be ethics and then eschatology because doesn't it make sense that you study last things lastly? Doesn't that make sense to you? That made sense to me in my mind. But as I looked at it more closely, as I grew in Christ, what I began to understand this pervasive theme through the New Testament of the return of Christ and that being in front of a believer's life is critical for many reasons. Because for one, it informs us on how we live on a daily basis. So let me, let me kind of jump in and say this. There, there are four things in the text today I want you to be on the lookout for as we go through this sermon. Okay, so if you're a note taker, here's your four words for the day. If you're a writer, you know, it's the word of God that's precious, not the actual paper that it's on in front of you that will last forever. Take notes in the columns or highlight. Uh, th- these are the words, confidence, trust, watch, and pray. Let me say those four words again, confidence, trust, watch, and pray. These all surround the return of Christ for a believer, and these are four things that we need to do daily because of the return of Christ. Let's unpack this, shall we? First of all, confidence in the Lord's coming. The first thing that I want us to see in this passage, and I think Jesus is pointing us to, is simply this. That the believer is to face these things with confidence. Now, as we've said throughout this whole passage, Jesus has spoken to different audiences, okay? He's spoken to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's spoken to the scribes. He's spoken to the first citizens of of the nation. And here, who is Jesus speaking to? He is speaking to the disciples, Okay? So this is, a, this is a passage that deals primarily with believers, people who claim to know Christ and are following him. So uh, one thing we can say for certain, if, if this was directed for John, right, the, the great man of love that he was and the author that he was, uh, if, this was, if this was spoken directly to Peter, who was zealous for the Lord, if this is spoken directly to James, the brother of Jesus, how much more do we need to hear the message in this passage, right, as followers of Jesus Christ? So here's what, here's what we're, we're saying. He's coming face to face with believers. And the first things he, want us, he wants to instill in the disciples and in us is a sense of confidence. I want you to look at the opening section here. Listen to the catastrophic words Jesus uses to describe what the world will be like before he returns. Here's what he says. There will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. The earth on that day, the distress of nations. Have we seen distressed nations recently? Have nations been at war and odds with each other? Has our nation been distressed lately? You better believe it, right? I would probably argue our nation is becoming increasingly divided to a point close to what it was like prior to the Civil War. I'd say that would be the only time closer to what we're having here. Uh, So there's distress of nations. 
says here uh, per, there will be uh, perplexity because of the roaring of the seas and waves. That's usually imagery, not just of sea and, and natural catastrophe, but of the, you know, the sea is all times uh, an analogy for people, you know, large groups of people, the sea and the waves being restless, people fainting with fear. Uh, you know, I don't know that I, I mean, I guess this can happen, people fainting with fear. I know it happens, but I think a lot of people between COVID, between all the shenanigans with the elections and all these things that have happened recently, I think, I feel like a lot of people have just turned inward. Just, I'm going to stay home, you know, us four no more, shut the door, and that's it. We're good with it. I don't think that's God's will for a believer. Now, if you have a sickness or something like that, that's a little different. But by and large, some people are just kind of so scared to go out, right? Proverbs says, uh, you know, in the Old Testament, there's a proverb about uh, some people won't get out because they say there's a line in the street because they're primarily living their lives based on fear. And this is not really the position of a Christian. Our general default setting is not to live in fear of lions in streets or uh, different sicknesses. I mean, here's the reality. As you get older, what you begin to learn is this. You can't control much anyway, can you? Can you control your health? Can you control what people come into your life and go? Can you control these things? God is, God is in control of these things. Can you keep people alive that are on a track towards death? Well, we've seen, as Michael said a minute ago, God can, we can. We, our general position should not be fear of circumstances. Now, we should fear God, but not of circumstances to where we'd faint. There were foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of heaven will be shaken. Okay? What we're going to see is all kinds of problems. Uh, and it will get much, as, as many things go, it will get much worse before it truly gets better. Uh, when you see these things take place, verse 28, what's your response, right? What does the Lord say to do? Straighten up, right? Raise your heads because the redemption is near. Jesus here is saying, as you see these cataclysmic, just huge, colossal things happening all around you that you can't control, well, take heart, look up, because your king's coming soon. The kingdom of God is near, and the king is returning soon. Because of Christ, because of grace, because of the gospel. Um, what I think Jesus is telling us here is what terrifies the world around us, what absolutely scares the world to death, should actually comfort believers. I know that sounds odd, but stay with me here. I think Jesus is pointing us to this reality that this world is coming unraveled. It's, it's falling into greater dysfunction. And as it falls into greater dysfunction, it is signaling, just like the tree in the parable he gave here, that the time is changing and this age is coming to an end and a new one is coming as he returns. The day of redemption is near. I love what J.C. Riley says, a great preacher of yesterday. He puts it this way, The very hour that the worldly man's hope shall perish shall be the hour when the believer's hope shall be exchanged for joyful certainty and full possession. And so Jesus says, remember now that when you see these great signs and you see uh, all these trials and tribulations, your response is not trembling and passing out with fear, right? 
Because when I come for you, beloved, Jesus tells us, that day is going to be a day of celebration for believers. All things that you have been waited for will then be your possession. Isn't that a beautiful thought for believers? You know, how many of you are very familiar with the hymns Charles Wesley wrote? Do any of you all know many hymns Charles Wesley wrote? Well, he's not a Baptist, Travis. I know he's not a Baptist, but he still had some good stuff, right? I'd love to have worship as passionate as Pentecostals, theology as solid as Presbyterians, and missions and outreach as good as all the Baptists put together, right? I'd love to have a church like that, wouldn't you? Because we all have our niches, okay? Anyway, back to Wesley. Wesley wrote this hymn, Lo, He Comes with Clouds Descending. Has anybody ever heard that hymn before? It's an old hymn obviously. And he captures so well the return of Christ in this hymn. Uh, and, And in the hymn, let me just read you a couple of the stanzas. It says, Lo, he comes with clouds descending, once for favored sinners slain. Thousands, thousands, saints attending, swell the trumpet of his train. Train, the long vessel that kings wear behind them. So that reaction of believers is, this is what we've been waiting for. That's what Wesley's writing for in this hymn. But listen here when he describes the reaction of those who have rejected Christ and who don't believe when he comes. In the next stanza he says this, Every eye shall now behold him robed in dreadful majesty. The return of Christ is dreadful for the unbeliever. Those who set a uh, knot and sold him, pierced and nailed him to the tree, deeply wailing, deeply wailing, shall the true Messiah see. Who's wailing? Those who have rejected Christ. Those whose treasure and trust and confidence is in everything in this world and nothing in Christ. And that is one of the most beautiful and true hymns about the return of Christ I think I've ever read coming from the pen of John Wesley. You know, when we read the Bible, what it says about the end... It is, it's an awesome thing. It's an, it's an amazing thing. It often causes believers to tremble. But Jesus is saying, as awesome as these things are surrounding my coming, the ultimate response of the believer to them ought to be confidence and ought to be rejoicing. You know, if by grace you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as he has offered to you in the gospel, his coming is the best possible news that you could ever experience in a very broken, sin-sick world. And so Jesus is saying, have confidence here. At the minimum, have confidence. Even when the awesome signs are surrounding you, the believer ought to respond in confidence. The last night on the Boundary Waters, I didn't share this in the last one, but it kind of helps me with this one. Uh, we were on this island. We had, we had broke camp and come halfway back to where we were exiting. And this storm was like encircled around us. Like it was completely and utterly, like there was lightning and thunder everywhere around us. There was like a hole right where we were in the sky. There was nothing above us. And you knew it was rolling in. And all night long, all night long, headwinds 20, 25 mile an hour, the tent was like, dancing. I don't know if you've ever seen a tent. They're just laying down, you know, in that wind, 40, 40 mile an hour gust. Next day, though, when it was over, peaceful, wind at her back, sailed in at a beautiful day. So it's coming in. It's setting in around us. It's going to get rough for a minute, right? The tent's going to dance a bit. But hang on. The good's coming. 
Second, trusting in the Lord's coming. But he goes on and emphasizes that we need to be prepared in trusting for his coming. We need to be prepared by trusting in his coming. Uh, look at verses, verse 26 here. He says, And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and glory. Now we know this reference to Son of Man is from Daniel chapter 9, uh, verse 13. The Son of Man who appears, the Ancient of Days in that passage, is given a kingdom. A kingdom that will have no end whatsoever. And this is an indication of Jesus' claiming deity, right? Uh, those who have uh, always said, well, Jesus never said he was God. He's saying it right here, friend, in these verses. When he makes statements like the Son of Man coming in a cloud of power and great glory, that's a divine Christological statement. Only person that can make a statement like that is the one creator and sustainer of the universe. That He is saying, I am God. I am the one that's doing that. This is a picture of the God in the Old Testament. It's very clear. It is uh, very clear to us, Jesus and his disciples, he's, being, he's telling them very clearly, I am God. I am the same God of the Old Testament. Be trusting in that. He's the second person of the Trinity. He is fully divine. He is fully human in this pattern. To say something like this, he, is, he, he can't do that unless you are God himself. He's saying that this, this passage here in verse 27, this is meant to invoke trust in the life of every believer. Uh, and, and not just trust in his disciples, but worship of his person. This is meant to do those two things, twofold things. And then notice what he says in the next thing. When these things being, begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, redemption's drawing near, draw down to 32. This generation will not pass away until this has taken place. This is a reference to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. He's about 40 years in the future from some of this stuff happening. But, you know, other parts of this are not going to be fully fulfilled. Remember, so many times when Jesus preaches, there's an already and a not yet. Already in that generation, there were parts of this to be fulfilled, but not all of it would be fulfilled. Kind of a two-phase thing with the kingdom, similar thing here in the prophecy. Uh, now, this is absolutely stunning here. Jesus is saying uh, in this passage here, as we, as we look closer to it, Creation itself is not going to sort of last in the state that it is, right? We move on here. He talks about his own eternal words here, right? Uh, he's, He's telling us here his words will not pass away. I want you to think about what Jesus is saying, right? My words will not pass away. If I came in here this morning and I said to you, right, like I like to write. I have written a book on Amazon about helping preschoolers deal with death when it happens. Not a lot of people know about that, but I did it. I think like five people bought it, which is like my wife, my mom, and two or three other people. But anyway, uh, my sister, I think, was another. Anyhow, um, I wrote dissertation for my doctorate. I write articles every month. I don't know if you read them or not. One of the hopes that you have as an author is that though you are dead one day, you will still speak, right? Because you will speak through the written word. But there will come a point when... Nobody will read your stuff anymore, right? This is just the inevitability of time. And as generations move on out away, if the Lord doesn't come back. I want you to think about this. If I came in here this morning and I said, guys, listen, I want to let you know. This country will have its end and demise and the United States will be over. But what I say and what I have written will far outlast this country. And everybody in here ought to be asking, what did he have for breakfast and what is wrong with him? Right? Like, 
This makes no sense. Like, he, are you on some kind of weird, egomaniacal trip? This is odd to make a statement like that in the first place. And second of all, to think you're that important that your words will endure on somehow after the nation that we live in collapses is utter nonsense. <clears throat> we ought to take him to Woodridge and have him examined, right? That would be something along your thinking. Think about what he's saying here. My words will not pass away. He makes it even clearer with the preceding section. Heaven and earth will what? Will pass away. Pastor Travis, why do you make us say Isaiah 40 every week? Right? Every week you read the passage, say the inerrant and foul word of God, and you rise truth on our hearts, because the grass withers, that's Isaiah 40. Flowers fade, but the word of God what? Endures forever. A couple reasons. One, there's kids in here. These kids need a framework for the Word of God in their brain to know what it is and how important it is. Two, you need a reminder. <laughs> you need a reminder every week that this is one of the most critical things. One of the things I loved about Anthony's sermon last week was he talked about, Lord, take our children, take our money, and that's jarring for us, isn't it? But don't take the Word of God from us, right? Because the Word of God passes away. Let me put this in your kitchen. Make, you, make sure you understand what, what Jesus is saying in its fullness. Everything in this room, other than the people, will perish and pass away. The seat you're sitting on will be gone one day. This concrete slab you're sitting on under your chair will be gone. This roof and this building will be gone. The parking lot you walk out onto your car today will be gone one day. It will end. Even the dirt under the concrete will be gone. And praise God that the mystery water leak that we've been battling for two weeks will be gone one day too. But it'll all be gone. But the words of Christ will endure long after all those things have perished. Isn't that amazing to think about? Longer than the dirt under my feet. Or for some of you, the dirt in your toenails, right? <laughs> of course, who can make statements like this? Who? Who can make a statement like this? My word will endure after creation unwinds. Only God can say such a thing. Only God. This great generation of ours will one day perish. And yet, Jesus' words will live on. So the first thing is confidence. The second thing is trust. This is the kind of thing you can trust. Things that will last forever, right? Uh, why, do we, why do we spend time researching the best products and the best cameras and the best cars and all that? We want to know we're buying from a manufacturer we can trust, Right? Uh, we want the product to last as long as it can because we put some trust in those particular manufacturers. Here is something better than Toyota's or Kia's 100,000-mile guarantee. This is something by far better. This is something eternal. All right, third thing, watch yourself in preparation of the Lord's coming. So we are confident, we are trusting, and now we are watching. Uh, look again here at his instruction in verse 34. Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down uh, with dis, uh, disposition, disputation, and drunkenness. That's, you know, ludicrous kind of sexual acts and drunkenness. Uh, and cares of this life and the day that they come upon you like a trap. So you're dealing with distraction, you're dealing with drunkenness, and there's all kinds of different variations of drunkenness and addiction. You could almost insert in there, uh, you know, whatever the addiction of choice is. Here, here is what he is saying here. He's not saying this to a bunch of unrepentant sinners. He's not talking to a bunch of pagans from Rome. 
He's talking to John. He's talking to Peter. And he is talking to James. He's talking to the twelve. He's talking to the crowd that had followed him. He's saying, look, you follower of me, you need to watch yourself so that you're not living a life full of debauchery and drunkenness. And, and caught up in all the cares of this life. He's telling his disciples, and if he, if he needs to tell us this as well, you've got to, your call is to be watchful at all times, to be sober. I like what J.C. Riley, again, a preacher of yesterday, says when he's thinking about this passage. He says this, We are to live on our guard like men and women in, a, in, in, an, in an enemy's country. We are to remember that evil is about us and near us and in us. And we have to contend daily with a treacherous heart, an ensnaring world, and a busy devil. Let me read those three enemies again because I think it's worth another take. We have to contend daily with a treacherous heart, an ensnaring world, and a busy devil. Remember this, we must put on the whole armor of God and beware of spiritual drowsiness. So not only do you have internal enemies and external enemies, you have just a tendency towards being aloof and asleep at the wheel when watchfulness is needed. Isn't that interesting? 1 Thessalonians 5, 6 tells us, Paul reminds the Thessalonians and he reminds us, let us watch and be sober. He's talking about self-watching, watching your own heart so that you're not caught up in the way that this world lives. You're not sucked into that, uh, to these kind of things. And he's talking about making sure that the focus of our lives is not taken up with the cares of this world as if nothing more than this world matters. He's saying, live so that when I return, I find you doing what you ought to be doing. But look what can happen to believers. If Jesus warns his disciples not to forget, not to be about forgetting and to be watchful, uh, then they're supposed to be doing what he has instructed them to do. This can happen to us, can it? We can sometimes easily forget where we are and why we're there. Um, I, I can remember working for dad a few times and there were, there were times when I thought, well, I'm, this is my dad's company. You know, it's after lunch. I'm tired. It's hot. I'm going to kind of do what I want to do. And I would, you know, it was brick and block construction. So sometimes I'd make like, we'd make little mud balls. You know, if you know what that is, it's not actual mud off the ground. It's mortar in between the block here. Before it gets hard with the block there, it's in a sort of like a, frosty Wendy's frosty consistency and as it gets a that's how you know it's good it's Wendy's frosty consistency and then as it gets drier it gets a little harder and you can make these little balls you can throw them at each other I remember one time we were doing that we were throwing mud balls at each other and dad found out about it and he was waiting on me at the house with a with quite a lecture <laughs> uh, because I had done two things in that moment hadn't I one, I had forgot where I was. Two, I had forgotten why I was there. I was not there to sling mud balls at people and, you know, throw it down the back of their pants, which we did that occasionally, too. So you want to make sure you had your pants up high, right? Uh, for obvious reasons. But anyway, remember why you're here. Don't forget. Be watchful. 
And then finally, the last one here is this. Prayerfully preparing yourself for the Lord's coming. Prayerfully preparing yourself for the Lord's coming. The fourth thing, we are to pray. We are to have confidence. We are to have trust. We are to pray. Notice what Jesus says here, verse 34. Stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape these things that are going to take place and stand before the Son of Man. Those of you who are familiar with the Gospels and you've read them several times, what does Jesus ask right before the Romans come to arrest him? He tells the disciples to stay here and do what? Stay awake and pray. And when he comes out of the garden after praying and sweating blood, what's he find the disciples doing? They were asleep. And they're not praying, are they? (laughs) Stay awake and pray. What Luke's going to record in the next chapter, we're going to see it as it unfolds here as we move through the gospel. Uh, His disciples were told to stay awake and pray. And it's the same command for us now. What's he going to say? They fell asleep. They didn't know what to do. Sinclair Ferguson, in thinking about this passage and this concept, was meditating on William Carey. Who, Who here knows who William Carey is? Raise your hand. If you've ever heard of William Carey. William Carey is the father of the modern mission movement that we know today. He was a Baptist in England in the uh, late 1700s, early 1800s, who felt called to be a missionary into India. And he was facing a bunch of hyper-Calvinists of his day. Hyper-Calvinism is heresy, by the way. If you've not heard, it is. Uh, hyper-Calvinism, the, basically what the, the British Baptist told him of his day was, the savages of India will be saved with or without our work. We have never believed that, you know, as, as, uh, as true Bible followers and Christians. We always think that God uses human intervention. That's the means he's chosen. And so William Carey said, I don't believe that. I'm going to India anyway. He had pastored a shirt church. He was a shoe cobbler. And he goes into India. And he wrote a letter back from India to England, to the church that he pastored. And here... Here were the words that he spoke to them. He says the following. India is like a deep, dark mine. Now, let me explain what he means by that. And you can look this up later if you want to. Actually, I would encourage you to do so. Um, There is this false narrative and culture of the noble savage. Have you all ever heard this before? That, you know, we just need to leave people groups alone wherever they are. Just kind of let them live out their lives sort of like we would animals in the wild. And they're not going to be civilized like we are, but it's awfully rude of us to try to think we can take the gospel of these people or civilize them somehow and just let them be as they are. The people of India of this day were largely Hindu. And when William Carey arrived, many Hindus in the country, all over the country, practiced this atrocious, horrific practice called sadi. Has anybody ever heard of that before? Sadi is this. It is the Hindu practice of when the husband perishes, when he dies... The widow who is still alive is placed on the burn pile and burned alive with her deceased husband. This was a common practice in India when William Carey arrived. And Saudi was banned in 1826 largely due to the work of William Carey. Okay? So he's talking about that kind of darkness being there. Can you imagine witnessing that? A widow being burned alive with her dead husband? It's like, man, you know. Anyway, it's just atrocious. So... He goes on to say this, and he said to the congregation, I will go down in the mine. By the way, it took him about 25 years to see social change to where Saudi was outlawed in India. It took 25 years of work to get Saudi outlawed. Can you imagine such a thing? Anyway, 
Uh, he says, I will go down the mine, but you must hold the rope for me. And what he meant by that, you must hold the rope for me, is of course primarily one, prayer. I'm willing to go down deep, dark, this deep, dark mine with ropes if you will pray for me. And, and I want to say, you know, Indian people are no more sinful or dark than American people. We have our own darkness now, believe me. In some ways, we need re-evangelism or perhaps first-time evangelism in some areas. So it's not a matter of one nation being more sinful than another. It's just darkness is dark everywhere, right? And this was the one that he's facing. So Sinclair Ferguson, another great preacher, was reflecting on, on Carey's letter to his congregation. And here's what he writes in response to that some time ago. Because uh, Sinclair Ferguson's alive today. He's one of us. Uh, what lay behind the remarkable days of the spiritual awakening in which William Carey lived? Well, we know the answer now. Cooperative, uh, yeah, cooperative prayer. Just large gatherings of prayer with God's people together. We know the Bible-believing Christians were praying for world evangelism for a hundred years before the great century of missionary work broke forth, beginning with William Carey. And so we know the answer to the question now. What lay behind the great spiritual awakening? Corporate prayer. We had one of the most successful VBSs this year for salvations and children coming to the Lord. And I think it's wonderful, but let me tell you something. It ain't because I'm slick. and It ain't because our VBS leaders are slick either. We had a lot of people praying for VBS before it happened. I am convinced that prayer is, is primarily to be highlighted as a reason why. Listen, when I did my doctorate of ministry work, my, I studied, my primary place that I studied was church revitalization. And I have read thousands and thousands and thousands of pages on church revitalization. Do you want me to tell you where every successful, I'll just quote Ed Stitzer, do you know where every successful church revitalization, that's a fancy way to say turn around church, back to the Lord, alive and vital for Him, you know what all of them start, you know what the foundational thing is for all of them? It is prayer. That's where it starts for all of them in every case. Uh, you know, Becky came from a great church in St. Louis, Heartland, and they used to have Sunday nights. The only thing they would do on Sunday nights, the only thing they would do is pray together. And they had no other activities. Nothing was allowed to happen during that time. It was only corporate prayer for the body. They would team up young people with older people, middle-aged people, wherever they could fit them in, right? And people would come from other churches for prayer meetings. That's a concept kind of completely foreign to this area. But there are places where that happens. Um, you know, sometimes I wonder, is the reason we don't see as much of an impact in our culture because we don't pray together enough? I seriously wonder that. As a, as a pastor, you almost feel as if holding out a prayer service is not conducive enough to get people to come. You've got to add a Bible study or something else with it. But isn't that what we need to be about? Isn't this what Jesus is telling us to be diligent about? Do we take heed to Jesus' call that we stay awake and that we pray? And are we praying for the kind of kingdom things that Jesus calls us to pray for in this very passage? That we would have strength that endures the trials to stand before the Son of Man? Is this a regular part of our corporate prayer, friends? I want us to think about these things. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this word today. How good and how true and how right it is. Help us today 
to not just see these words of your return and think well of it, but Lord, let us be, let it be tied intrinsically to how we live every day. Let us be confident. Let us be trusting. Let us be praying, Lord, as we wait and anticipate your return. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today I have primarily been speaking to Christians, as that was the nature of the text today, people who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ. But if you're here today, you have never trusted Christ. Uh, you've trusted anything but Christ. You've trusted your health. You've trusted your abilities. You've trusted your family. You've trusted whatever. Friend, the invitation stands for you this morning. Won't you come to him? Relieve yourself of these broken cisterns and come to the only place you can find living water. Come to Christ this morning. Or perhaps you're here today and you just want to pray. You know, this altar right here, it's kind of like an altar. These steps here. Come down here and pray this morning. You just want to thank God. We can do that this morning. Or you want to talk to me about being part of this church family. I'll be in the back as we sing in response. Please stand.